Chapter Nine of the Short Line War by Merwin Webster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine: The Matter of Possession. The M and T Terminal Station at Manchester was in reality two buildings. From the street, it looked like an ordinary three-story office building, except that there were no stores on the street level. Instead, the first floor was taken up by two large waiting rooms, the ticket office, and a baggage room. Entering through the big doorway in the center, you ascended a few steps, passed through the waiting room, then up some more steps and across a covered iron bridge which spanned a narrow alley. This bridge connected the station proper with the train shed. The offices of the company occupied the two upper floors. The same stairway that led to the bridge doubled on itself and zigzagged up the rest of the way. As you reached the second floor, the office of the superintendent was before you across the hall. To your right were large rooms occupied by various branches of the clerical force, while to your left the first door bore the word treasurer, and the second was lettered president. The treasurer's office was a large room cut off at the rear by a vault which contained the most valuable of the company's books and papers. The main vault was downstairs. A narrow passage between the vault and the partition led to a small window which overlooked the train shed and the alley. On one side of this passage was the vault entrance; on the other was a door which had been cut through the partition into the president's private office. Early on Monday morning, after a brief survey of the various officers and a few words with the superintendent. Harvey assumed the direction of the road and established himself in the president's room, while a big deputy sat at the desk in the outer office. The night before, at the Illinois House, Jim and Harvey had talked until late, discussing every detail of the situation. Jim had gone over the fight of Saturday, winding up with a few words of advice. "We'll have trouble," he said. "Porter isn't going to let things slip away any easier than he has to." The safe plan is to suspect everything and everybody, keep everything in sight. I'll be here to help, but from now on you represent the road. Harvey arranged the desk to suit him. Then he opened the small door behind him and crossed the passage. The vault door was open, but a steel gate barred the way. A key hung by the window, and as Harvey unlocked the gate and swung it open, a bell rang. He examined the shelves and noted that the books were in place. He knew that the possession of those books meant practically the possession of the road. Re-entering his office, he found the deputy standing in the other doorway. "Gentlemen, to see you, Mr. West," said the deputy. "Won't give his name. Says it's important." "Show him in," Harvey replied. The deputy stepped back and made way for a quiet-looking man who was even larger than himself. The newcomer closed the door behind him. Mr. West," he said. "Mr. Weeks ordered me to report to you. I'm Mallory from the Pinkerton Agency. I have three men outside. Have you any instructions?" Harvey checked a smile. It reminded him of the stories of his boyhood, but in a moment it dawned upon him that if Jim thought the situation so serious, he must be very careful. "Yes," he answered slowly. "Put one man near the vault here." He opened the small door. Let no one go into the vault without my permission. Then you might put one man in the hall, somewhere out of sight, and one outside the building. You understand that there may be an attempt to get possession of the books. Do you know any of the C N S C men, William C Porter or Frederick McNally? 
The detective shook his head. Well, then, just keep things right under your eye and report every hour or so. The detective nodded and left the room. A little later, Harvey opened the side door and saw a man lounging in the passage, looking idly out the window. Shortly after ten, Jim came in to talk things over. He told Harvey that the CNSC people had a counter-move underway, but he was unable to discover its nature. He had seen McNally in company with a number of men who did not often leave Chicago. "'He'll be up here yet,' Jim added prophetically, and he went out without leaving word. "'Don't know how long I'll be,' was all he would say, "'but you'll see me off and on.' Ten minutes after Jim's departure, McNally appeared. Harvey heard his voice in the outer office, then the deputy came to Harvey's desk. "'Mr. Frederick McNally,' said the official. "'He asked for the superintendent first, and I sent him in to Mr. Madison.' but he sent him back to you. Will you see him? Yes, replied Harvey, and you may stay in the room. The deputy held open the door while McNally entered. How are you, West? he said brusquely. There seems to be some confusion here. The superintendent disclaims all authority and refers me to you. Sit down, said Harvey, waiting for McNally to continue. Evidently, McNally preferred to stand. I wish to see someone in authority, Mr. West. You may talk with me. You? Are you in authority? Harvey bowed and fingered a paperweight. I don't understand this, West, he glanced at the deputy. I wish to see you alone. For a moment Harvey looked doubtful. Then he smiled slightly and nodded at the deputy, saying, Very well. Will you tell me what this means? asked McNally when the door had closed. Harvey looked gravely at him and said nothing. Well? McNally's coolness was leaving him. Are you in control of this road, or aren't you? I am. In that case, he produced a paper. It becomes my duty to relieve you. Harvey looked at the paper. It was an order from Judge Black appointing McNally receiver for M&T. Harvey handed it back, saying coolly, Sit down, Mr. McNally. I have no time to waste, West. You will please turn over the books. They are in the vault, said Harvey, pointing to the side door. McNally looked sharply at Harvey, but the young man had turned to a pile of letters. After a moment's hesitation, McNally opened the door and pulled at the steel gate. As he was peering through the bars, a heavy hand fell on his shoulder. Here, said a low voice, you'll have to keep away from that vault. Take your hand away, McNally ordered. Come now, move on. Mr. West, under whose orders is this man acting? His superior officers, I suppose. Harvey called through the door without rising. Call him at once, sir. The detective beckoned to a boy and sent him out of the office. In a moment his chief appeared. This man sent for you, Mr. Mallory, said the detective. What is it? asked Mallory. McNally blustered. I want to know what this means. Do you understand that I am the receiver of this road? Oh, no, you aren't. Mallory stepped to the door. Is this true, Mr. West? No, said Harvey, it isn't. You'll have to leave then, my friend. Don't you touch me. McNally's face was growing red. For reply, each detective seized an arm, and the protesting receiver was hustled unceremoniously out of the room. An hour later, McNally returned, 
He greeted the deputy with a suave smile and requested an interview with Mr. West. "'I'm not sure about that,' said the deputy. "'That is too bad,' smiled McNally. "'Kindly speak to Mr. West.' With a disapproving glance, the deputy opened the door. Harvey came forward. "'Well,' he said brusquely, "'what can I do for you?' McNally stepped through the door and seated himself. "'I've been thinking this matter over, Mr. West, "'and I believe that we can come to an understanding. "'If your claims are correct, the road has two receivers. "'You are nominally in possession, "'but nevertheless you are liable for contempt of court "'for refusing to honor my authority. "'Whichever way the case is settled, "'I am in position to inconvenience you for resisting me.' "'He waited for a reply, but Harvey waited too.' In the interest of the road, Mr. West, it would be very much better for you to recognize me, even to the extent of having two receivers. It could not affect the outcome of the case, and it might avoid trouble. I can't agree with you, Harvey replied. I shall retain control of the road until the case is settled. McNally rose. Then I warn you, you will have a big undertaking on your hands. I suppose so. Very well. Good morning. "'Good morning, Mr. McNally.' "'At noon, Harvey went out to lunch. "'He met Jim at the hotel and told him what had happened. "'Jim smiled at Harvey's seriousness. "'The fight hasn't begun yet,' he said. "'When you've been through as many deals as I have,' "'he stopped and drew out his watch. "'It's one-thirty. You'd better get back. "'I'll go with you and look over the field.' "'As they walked through the waiting-room, "'Harvey fancied that he heard a noise from above.' However, the noon express out in the train shed was blowing off steam with a roar, and he could not be positive. But Jim quickened his pace and ran up the steps with surprising agility. As they neared the second floor, the noise grew. There was scuffling and loud talking, culminating in an uproar of profanity and blows. The first man they saw was McNally. He stood near the stairway, hat on the back of his head, face red but composed. Before him was a strange scene— Mallory and the big deputy stood with their backs to the treasurer's door, tussling with three burly ruffians. Beyond the deputy, one of the detectives was standing off two men with well-placed blows. The two other detectives were rolling about the floor, each with a man firmly in his grasp. There was a great noise of feet as the different groups swayed and struggled. In the excitement, none of them saw Jim and Harvey, who stood for a moment on the top step. A stiff blow caught the deputy's chin, and he staggered. With a quick motion, Mallory whipped out a pair of handcuffs. There was a flash of steel as he drew back his arm. Then the maddened ruff went down in a heap, a stream of blood flowing from his head. One of the others, a red-haired man, gripped the handcuffs and fought for them. It all happened in an instant, and as Harvey stood half-dazed, he heard a breathless exclamation, and Jim had sprung forward. Some persons might have thought Jim Weeks fat. He weighed 240 pounds, but he was tall and wide in the shoulders. On ordinary occasions, his face was so composed as to appear almost cold-blooded, but now it was fairly livid. Harvey drew in his breath with surprise. He had seen Jim angry, but never like this. In three strides, Jim was behind the red-haired man. He threw an arm around the man's neck, jerking his chin up with such force that his body bent backward, and relinquishing his hold on the handcuffs, he clutched gasping at Jim's arm. But the arm gripped like iron. While Mallory was pulling himself together and turning to aid the deputy, 
Jim walked backward, dragging the struggling man to the head of the stairs. On the top step he paused to grip the man's trousers with his other hand. Then he literally threw the fellow downstairs. Bruised and battered, he lay for a moment on the landing. Then he struggled to his feet and moved his arm toward his hip pocket. But Jim was ready. The breathless president started down the stairs with a rush. For an instant the man wavered. Then he broke and fled into the train shed. On his return, Jim had to step aside to avoid another ruffian who was walking down with profane mutterings. This time Harvey had a hand in the fighting, and he leaned over the railing to answer the man's oaths with a threat of the law. Jim and Harvey stood aside while the four detectives and the deputy led the remainder of the gang downstairs to await the police. From the various offices, frightened faces were peering through half-open doors. A few stripling clerks appeared with belated offers of assistance, but Jim waved them back. Already Jim was cooling off. He could not afford to retain such a passion, and he mopped his face and neck for a few moments without speaking. His breath was gone, but he began to recover it. "'Hello,' he said at length. "'Where's McNally?' Harvey started, then ran down the hall, glancing hastily into the different offices. When he returned, Jim had vanished. While he stood irresolute, two stalwart brakemen appeared from the train shed and stood on the landing. One of them called up. "'Can we help you, sir?' "'Wait a minute,' said Harvey. A door opened down the hall. Harvey looked toward the sound and saw Jim backing out of the washroom, followed by McNally, whose arm was held firmly in Jim's grasp. They came toward Harvey in silence. "'He was hiding, West,' said Jim, a savage eagerness in his voice. "'He hadn't the nerve to stick it out. Corker, isn't he?' McNally stood for a moment, looking doggedly out through the window over the roof of the shed. "'You've got yourself into a mess, Weeks,' he said, speaking slowly in an effort to bring himself under control." "'This'll land you in Joliet.' For reply, Jim looked him over contemptuously and tightened his grasp until the other winced. Then he suddenly loosened his hold, stepped back, and calling, "'Catch him, boys!' kicked McNally with a mighty swing. Harvey laughed hysterically as the flying figure sailed down the stairway. Then he heard Jim say to the brakeman, "'Take him to Mallory and tell him to put him with the others.' "'Well,' said Harvey nervously, "'I guess that's settled.' "'No,' said Jim. "'It's only just begun. "'He'll be on deck again before night.' The next sentence was lost in the mopping handkerchief, but as he turned into the office, he added, "'We'll have to lose the books tonight, West.'" End of chapter 9